0: Are you struggling to keep your head above water during these uncertain times? Does life seem overwhelming to you right now? Well, welcome to the Refusing to Drown podcast, where there is always a spot on shore for you. This podcast is about overcoming adversity and addiction, finding the inner strength that is within all of us, healing old wounds, and allowing our own consciousness to be our guide. I'm your host, Harrison Dupuis, and I've been refusing to drown for eight years. In episode one, I painted the picture of my early childhood experiences and how sexual trauma colored my world. I also told of my almost immediate onset of alcoholism after my first drink and how it would eventually lead to a suicide attempt with three small children at home and presumably everything to live for. In this episode, I'm finishing my story of losing it all and going into how one thing said to me on Shark Tank would change the trajectory of my life and turn it around forever. And just as a side note, if you hear crickets and birds in the background, no, those are not special effects. I'm living in a tent in the mountains right now, and that's where I'm recording this episode, more in my decision to become homeless in future episodes. Sound interesting to you? Subscribe to this podcast and continue this metamorphic journey with me. Okay, suicide. How did I get there? Well, I will tell you, I've always been a don't-kill-yourself kind of person. And while maybe I've wanted to die at times and I've fantasized about leaving this life and jumping into the other... Suicide was not something I felt all that called to. I didn't believe in it. It wasn't in the cards for me, and I knew that. While I never bought into the Catholic fear tactic of you're going to hell or you'll be a lost soul in purgatory forever, I did believe, and I still do, that there would be karmic consequences if I chose to do that. But when you misdiagnose someone with a psychiatric disorder they don't have, and give them psychiatric drugs that they should not be on, on top of drinking, well, that's how I got there. The only drug I was on at the time was Prozac, which a doctor put me on to help me handle my crazy busy life a little bit better and weather my divorce. This is one occasion where I just should have drank more. I didn't feel right on that drug. It did not make me feel any better. In fact, it made me feel worse. So, like a true neurotic, I faxed a letter to my psychiatrist I was seeing at the time, letting him know that I felt like I was crawling out of my skin. Because that is exactly what I felt like. In retrospect, I was experiencing what is known as a medically induced manic episode. My behavior was risky. I was spending entirely too much money. And I eloped with a drug addict I thought was my soulmate in New York after knowing him for only four months. Without a prenuptial agreement. That, my friends, is what mental illness looks like. And I was, by the very definition, mentally ill. By way of the current mental health system. Thanks. The doctor's response to my page-long letter and very clear depiction of how I was feeling was, Keep taking your medication. I'll see you in six months. I got blown off as a bipolar patient who wanted off of their meds. And, of course, the doctor knew best. Fourteen days later... I swallowed a handful of pills and was carted off to the loony bin. Does the term malpractice come to your mind about right now? Because it should. And before I could get a full 72 hours in on the psych ward, which is the legal limit to how long they can hold you after a suicide attempt, my children and my business were both legally taken away from me. Everything that mattered to me was taken away from me. This would play to the advantage of my ex who was suing me for half of everything. I would like to report that after 72 hours, I was released to go back to my daily life. No. (laughs) No. They kept me there for a week. Newsflash! That wasn't legal. They said they were keeping me there until I took responsibility for what I did. I refused. I told them about the letter I faxed my shrink telling them I felt like I was losing it. That was ignored. They didn't care. So, since I was going to be forced to stay, I demanded to see a doctor. I hadn't been seen by a professional in 72 hours. Because on the psych ward after a suicide attempt, all you do is eat, sleep, bowl plastic bowling balls down the hallway, oh yeah, and listen to people cry, scream, and watch them drool from all the drugs they're being shot up with. The psych ward is not a place you want to be. Trust me. There was a definitive moment where I could have mentally checked out or kicked my ass back into the realm of sanity. It was a fork-in-the-road moment for me, which there would be many since. I remember a kind nurse, familiar with my business and who I was, who seemed kind and empathetic to my situation, saying to me, "Terrison, get your shit together. You don't belong here. And that made an impact on me. So I started to play along. I piped my ass down and accepted responsibility for my actions. I filled out some A-B answers on the MMPI, a mental health assessment test that I was smart enough to manipulate my way through, and got sent home in sweatpants and a Fuzzy Buns t-shirt. What a mess. You might be asking yourself, Girl, where the hell do you live with such ass-backward systems such as that? I lived in a place in Louisiana at the time where you literally needed subtitles to understand what people were saying. Now, my dad's full-blooded Cajun, and I grew up with that accent. So I didn't have any problems understanding. But if you aren't from there, subtitles and the laws, I think they make them up as they go. They don't work the same way they do in other parts of the country. One call to the attorney and a call to the judge. And that was it. Incarcerated for a week. while changes were made in ownership of my company without my consent. And my children's custody was awarded to my ex-husband. No one even talked to me. I was just handed the papers. While I would agree that my children needed to be with someone else while I got better, the business was a whole other story. When I left my first husband, I thought we'd have a peaceful divorce and division of property. Hardly. He had a new love interest, you see, who would conveniently become his second wife, pumping him full of ideas of financial opportunity with a hefty 50-50 split. It broke my heart and sometimes still does, that no one seemed to see that I was sinking amidst all of this. No one offered a hand up. Maybe I put on such a good show for people on the outside, no one noticed. I don't know. I can remember getting on top of the toilet in my hospital room and looking at myself in the mirror. It was a very tall mirror, and I was a very short woman. But I hadn't stopped in five years. From the time I invented the first Fuzzy Buns cloth diaper in 1999, I had been full speed ahead. Somehow, I figured out how to invent a product, create a brand, launch a successful business, and build my own manufacturing facility, which would provide a living for about 30 families. And being a pioneer in the modern cloth diaper movement was not easy, but my passion was there and I was just full throttle. And I did this all while raising three small children. I knew I needed help, but the help I got only made matters worse. Now, everything that I worked so hard for was being taken away. 2005 was the worst year of my entire life. The only good part was the month that I spent in a luxury rehab facility for the rich and famous in Pacific Palisades, California, for trauma and suicide survivors. A therapist I was seeing after I got out of the hospital recognized my alcoholism, especially since he himself was in recovery. I couldn't pass any of my bullshit past him. He also saw that I was sinking and needed more help than he could give. And removing me from the chaos that was being heaped on me by both husband number one and husband number two, he suggested a mental health vacation. Ugh, I loved that place organic breakfast, yoga, EMDR therapy, and actual psychiatric care. Imagine that. I was weaned off most of the drugs the psych ward was force-feeding me to. There was group, music therapy, and trips to Walgreens and the beach. I needed that break from the insanity that was my life at the time. Gave me time to breathe. Thankfully, my dad insisted that my company I was currently kicked out of foot the bill for that. $30,000. Well worth it. I came home for my birthday in May and started getting my shit together. First priority, kick the crackhead to the curb. Second priority, get my kids back, which took me three months. God, that was so heartbreaking. I lived next door to them, and I couldn't see them. I was allowed supervised visitation and would volunteer at their school during the week just to be close to them. Mind you, all I did was swallow six Tylenol PM and a few Clonopin. I was treated like I'd been abusing my children since they were born, but... In all fairness, I did allow a drug addict into my life. I was so incredibly naive to that, I couldn't recognize it. And of course, there was the restraining order against me to not enter the building that I owned and the business that I founded and was CEO of. It's taken me a long time to see how very fucked up this all was. But I sucked it up and started showing some progress. I had a great psychiatrist out of New Orleans who was monitoring my mental health and medication, and I was given a proper diagnosis of nothing more than burnout, anxiety, and, surprise, ADHD. The curse of the incredibly creative. No one would touch my alcoholism. Finally, I had a doctor who understood me, that took the time to dig deeper and get to know me instead of just signing their name onto another prescription pad so many shrinks do. I got my children back in June, and by July, I was feeling more like myself. My old self, anyway. Then in August, Katrina happened. That bitch. I watched my home sink under six feet of water from 120 miles away. I wasn't sure what family members I might have lost, and cell phone reception was a joke. It would be a week before I would know anything. I'm positive I have erased 2005 from my memory almost entirely. To make matters worse, my shrink that I loved so much evacuated to Montana. I had to find a replacement. This woman would have me on six different medications at some point. Something for anxiety, something for depression, a mood stabilizer, an antipsychotic. Oh yeah, and for sure something to help me sleep. I think she went to jail at some point. At least I believe I read that somewhere. By late 2005, I couldn't tell you what my name was, and I'm pretty sure I was drooling when I sat and watched the grass grow. But I wanted so badly to be fixed. It had become abundantly clear that I was broken, and I just thought the doctors knew best. Oh God, how wrong I was. I had my children back, but my business was a whole other story. The infighting over that would last for a solid year. There was a point that the judge got so fed up that he kicked my ex-husband out of it too and put the mechanic in charge of things. Oh my God, I was livid. For a solid year after my suicide attempt in March 2005, I lived in a constant state of trauma and PTSD. It all came to a head, however, with a trip to Cancun, Mexico to try and reconcile things with my now supposedly sober still husband. It didn't go well. The worst place for an alcoholic to go is an all-inclusive resort where they meet you with a complimentary bottle of Don Julio tequila. Oh, and after a full day of drinking, and God only knows what else, husband number two whispers in my ear while I was lying on the bed, I'm gonna get the best divorce your money can buy. I roundhouse kicked the motherfucker in the face, and he popped me back in the arm. Twice. I have never in my life been hit by a man, nor have I been violent. Then he took my driver's license and left me in Mexico. Never in a million years would I have thought this would be my life or that I would have been in a situation like this. Never! I was a good person. I was kind to people. I worked hard. I was intelligent. I was an attentive and involved mom. What the fuck happened to me? But something was looking out for me, because I happened to have an expired driver's license on me, and was able to buy a ticket back to New Orleans under that name, and board a first-class ticket back home. But I missed my daughter's birthday, and I knew that was it. I had finally had a moment of clarity. When I got home, I filed for my second divorce, and I flushed every single pharmaceutical down the toilet, and I took my life back. A month later, I settled for a whopping $2.2 million to be able to walk back into the doors of my company, and I will tell you, the business was barely worth $3 million on paper. Despite expert testimony illustrating how this kind of settlement would kill the goose that laid the golden egg, that goose being me, The other side would argue that I was such a great entrepreneur that I would be resourceful and figure out a way to regrow the business to likely be a $10 million company in 10 years. But community property is a division of the assets where they are at the time of divorce, not in 10 years. The judge did not care. He pulled a valuation of $4.5 million out of the sky and said, pay him half. This is the same judge who took my children away with an executive order without even calling my attorney. The same judge that kept me incarcerated in the hospital four days longer than I should have been, and the same judge that kicked me out of my own company. Again, at my ex-husband's attorney's bequest. Bloodlines run deep in good old boy country Louisiana, and my ex-husband's attorney had the right DNA. Nothing made legal sense. From keeping me in the hospital longer than legally mandated to pulling a valuation out of the sky with no formal or sound reasoning, I have never felt so insignificant and so powerless in my life. I was a commodity, a pawn in a game, and it was a game that I was losing. I could do nothing else but accept it. I didn't care that I would have to rebuild the company with only $5,000 left in the bank account. Or... That I would now have a debt to pay, which sucked up every penny of profit, leaving nothing to continue to grow the company with. Business loan, <laughs> right? What a joke! Investor, no longer investable, and it would have been ripe for it at the time. I built that company by taking two dollars and turning it into twenty over and over and over and over again, and in just a few short years after doing that, I would have hit multimillion dollar status. But I did it. In true entrepreneurial form, I rebuilt. And guess what? The next five years with Fuzzy Buns would be an amazing ride. After five years of building a foundation and shouting from every rooftop that cloth diapers were now a better option for modern parents, people were finally listening. Public relations became my best friend. It seemed I was either flying to the East Coast to be on this show or to the West Coast to be on another show. Magazine covers, feature articles, interviews, and a CBS News appearance were all a part of my life. And wait for it, the best part, Oprah called! That's right. I walked into my office one day, the dilapidated building I called a factory, and there it was. A big sheet of paper on my window. The Oprah show was scouting for products to be on the show, and Fuzzy Buns was one of them. Was this my Oprah moment? (gasps) I couldn't believe it. Was it happening? My vision that I had when I was 16? Until they asked me one pivotal question that I had to answer honestly. They asked, can your business handle being on the show? (sighs) I had to say no. (gasps) I could barely keep up with the demand that we did have. I didn't have the infrastructure in place. So Boudreaux's butt paste took my place and now he's in every freaking Walmart and every place on the planet. Oh, well, good for Boudreau. Always knew that wasn't my Oprah moment I had envisioned anyway. And I'm not even going to feed you any bullshit. That time in my life was amazing. I was having the time of my life. Thank God. And in 2008, After two years of shuffling kids back and forth and trying to co-parent between three contentious and highly resentful adults, I was awarded sole custody of my three children. My ex's new wife was never kind to my children, especially my daughter and my son Eden. And the day Eden threw a donut hole at her head after she had a conniption for him leaving the toilet seat up, he was eight. His dad did the unthinkable and stood up for one of his kids. Something he was never allowed to do. She kicked his ass to the curb, and it was his turn to have a nervous breakdown and near-suicide attempt. Karma. It's something else, ain't it? I felt bad for Terry. That was my ex-husband's name. Despite my resentment at the checks I had to write every month, I always saw that situation for what it was, and I placed blame where it belonged. He, too, was easily manipulated and controlled by other people. But... I was so grateful that the infighting over my children and the shit they were going through at his house was finally over. I had a successful business, and I could afford to be the sole supporter of my children with no help from him, which I did. But with this level of success came something I was not expecting. I had never really liked the Joneses, but all of a sudden, I was keeping up with them. My rationale was that if I had to pay my ex-husband all of this money every month. Well, I was going to enjoy my life too, right? I bought a beautiful house in a gated golf course community, bought a BMW convertible, sent my children to expensive private schools that I do not regret, and had a boyfriend in San Francisco, which I would fly back and forth to see for a little bit of fun in my life. I deserved it, right? I had swore after my rebound marriage to a drug addict, I would never mix my family and romantic life ever again. And I stuck to that. Until this very day. I wish I could have hit the reverse button on those Joneses. Oh God. Because that is where my life shifted yet again. I traded in my Birkenstocks and the granola cloth diapering mama lifestyle for Louis Gucci, Prada, Fendi, and vacations in fabulous places. And my ego grew so big that I didn't even know spirit anymore. But I certainly looked like I had my shit together. And truth be told, in many ways I did but I was also delusional thinking my business would last forever. I mean, it had to. I had a huge debt to my ex-husband. Car payments, mortgage payments, private school tuition for three children. Oh, God. It makes my stomach turn just thinking about all of the attachment to stuff and all the things I felt entitled to. Out of all of the disclosures of my sexual abuse and my addictions, This, this is what I am most ashamed of. Imagine that. And the icing on the cake of this overinflated ego? My 25-year-old boyfriend I would fall in love with in 2011? Oh yeah, cougar was a title I wore with pride. But let me tell you, I loved that boy. I was 41 and he was 25. How did we meet? Well, Mardi Gras, of course. The stage for many of my pivotal moments of life. He was the cousin of my best friend and while we rocked everybody's world with our scandalous love affair our families eventually both embraced it and accepted it for a year it was amazing until it wasn't now if i'm being honest he was a great distraction from my business that was now starting to go in the opposite direction of up amazon was putting my small retailers out of business and china was starting to take over my market in a way which made it nearly impossible to compete in the U.S. market. But can you say, Denial! I lived in a state of, If you don't look at it, it doesn't exist, for about a year, while I flew back and forth to Dallas to see my little cub lover. And then, I got the call. A producer from Shark Tank wanted to talk to me about being on the show. And just to give you an idea as to how inflated my ego was at the time, I told them, Um, I don't think I'm a good fit for your show. (laughs) People would give their right arm and their left toe to be on that show. And I said, yeah, I don't know. But in many rational ways, I was right. I wasn't a startup. I had been in business for 12 years and I had baggage. And what I mean by that was I had patent infringement out of the wazoo and a debt to my ex-husband. I knew they'd frown on that. Shit, I knew I would if I was an investor. And my business was not on the incline. (laughs) While I might have been a mess at times, I am a smart and strategic businesswoman. I know what investors look for, and I wasn't it. But after asking what their viewership was, which was 5 million viewers in a prime time slot, I said, okay, why not? I'll audition and see what happens. Regardless of the outcome, it would do cloth diapers some good to get national TV exposure. So I did it. I made it. And my life was about to fall apart again. For the third time in my life. For four months, Shark Tank ruled my life. Auditions, calls, pitches, contracts, lawyers, set design, etc., etc. My bag was packed and I was just waiting for the ticket to ride. But two hours before my flight was scheduled to depart from New Orleans to LA, I got the text. I'm done. The love is gone. Don't come to Dallas. My boyfriend broke up with me in a text message two hours before I was boarding a plane to do what was likely the most important thing I could do for my business at the time. And given the fact that I was obsessed, overly attached, and thought this was the person I was going to spend the rest of my life with, (laughs) did I say I was delusional? Did you catch that? I think I did. Anyway, I did not take it well. But I couldn't cry because I was shooting Shark Tank in, uh, let me check less than 36 hours. And I could not do that with puffy eyes. I filed that away until after the show. And in true Terrison form, I walked out there with my head held high. I pitched like a pro and I answered questions intelligently and honestly. But I was not prepared for what one of the sharks would say to me, which did not make it to air and thank God. My big fear going into the tank wasn't that I wouldn't get a bite, because honestly, I wasn't expecting one. It was that they would be mean to me. This sensitive human doesn't do well with mean. But they weren't. In fact, they were mostly kind and they understood where I'd been, what it took to get there, and what the situation actually was. Kevin said he admired my tenacity, something I've been called for years. Barbara said I reminded her of herself which was a big compliment from someone whose journey I'd also admired. But Robert? Robert was supposed to be the kinder, gentler shark, right? But what he said to me stung like a wasp in my eyeball. He looked at me straight in the face and said, Terrison, I think the problem is you. (gasps) What? My stomach fell onto the oriental carpet. Oh my God, here it was. I was going to be exposed on national TV with five million people watching. But you know what? He was right. It would take me three years to realize how right he was. But that statement changed my life for the better. He was the first person who would ever honestly confront me and tell me I was the problem. I certainly couldn't see it. Nobody was bold enough to intervene. And if they did, I probably had my head so far up my own ass. I wouldn't have listened. So yes, Robert Herjavec, you changed my life. Thank you for being honest with me. Once you exit the tank, they send a shrink into the green room to do an exit interview with you. All I could say was, My boyfriend broke up with me yesterday, and and apparently I'm defective because Robert said so. But he was so right. He saw through my charade. I'd lost my passion for the business, I would let things happen that there was no excuse for, and I had poor judgment all over the place. Barbara even noticed that. I question your judgment, she said. Overall, my Shark Tank experience was a life-changing one. They were all right. I was and am tenacious. I pursue my dreams. I work my ass off. I'm usually a smart person, and I make things happen when I want to. But I had no idea how to keep anything. The night I shot Shark Tank at the rap party with the other tankers, I got rip-roaring drunk and wound up hooking up with one of the other pieces of shark bait. I missed my flight back home the next day and jumped the next first-class flight home. The man that I was sitting next to on the plane saw that I was in rough shape, and I can only imagine what I smelled like. I know I had the shakes, which he could see. He put his arm on mine and looked at me kindly and said, Are you okay? <laughs> Legally, I could not tell him I just shot Shark Tank. All I could do was cry. He was an angel that was sent to me that day. I needed one. The problem was me. The problem was me. The problem was me? That's all I kept thinking. Keep in mind that businesses don't run themselves. People do. And while I don't accept 100% of the blame for my business failing, as there were certainly things outside of my control, there were... Definitely decisions that I made that contributed to the downhill spiral of the diaper business that it would take down the toilet. I never knew how to set good boundaries. I never knew how to say no to people. I wanted everyone to like me, which stems from that primal fear of abandonment. And I made being taken advantage of and manipulated into an art form in all parts of my life, including business. All of these things I know now were a result of early childhood trauma. And those things plagued my personal life, my romantic life, and my business life. This is exactly why I wrote my first book, Superpowers for Entrepreneurs, to help entrepreneurs untangle some of those barriers to success that I faced. Yes, it's for sale on Amazon. If you're an entrepreneur, I highly suggest it. For years, I heaped on so much blame on myself for that company failing. I drank it all away, I would say in AA meetings, because, well, I'm dramatic that way. But the truth is, trauma, trauma that I did not ask for, took that away from me. When I returned from LA after shooting Shark Tank, I felt like the biggest fucking loser in the world. I stepped down as CEO and appointed two of my employees who were talented, driven, and under 30 as the top officers of my company. I felt, well, maybe since I was the problem, that would fix it, right? I didn't get out of bed for two months. I didn't go to work. I didn't answer emails. I just wanted to disappear. I was still so obsessed and brokenhearted from being jilted by my young lover, I couldn't move. This experience was one of those soul-shifting experiences where you just know you can't keep on doing what you're doing. And where was God in all of this? Uh, let me back up. Who was God? Huh how far I'd fallen. I've heard the acronym for ego is edging God out. And I would have to say this is 100% true. Money, success, alcohol, and men were my gods. None of them did me any good. I can remember sitting in my bed and looking at the ceiling, and I said one simple word. Help. I need help. I didn't even know who or what I was asking for help from. But I said it. And you know what? Help came. And it came in the form of an email from Deepak Chopra. He was starting one of his 21-day meditation challenges, and that seemed like a good idea at the time. I loved meditation, even though I hadn't thought about slowing down long enough over the last 10 years to do it. So I started it, and I followed it through for the entire 21 days. And you know what? things started shifting in my life. I started getting back into a spiritual practice and feeling that connection I once had, even if it was in small whispers from spirit. I was pulled out of this post-shark tank depression and actively started going back to work and looking for solutions, something I'm naturally good at. I found a solution, (laughs) or so I thought, in two men that were looking for a business to acquire. I agreed to liquidate my business entity and they would absorb the brand under their business and pay me a monthly licensing fee and consulting fee for the next 10 years in lieu of a lump-sump payment that neither of them had. I still had ownership of my IP rights at the time. I didn't care. I was exhausted and I wanted out. Sounds good, right? But the investor that they brought on, which was still badly needed or the business was guaranteed to fail and do so quickly, insisted on owning the IP rights too. I acquiesced with much hesitation and signed the only thing of value I owned over to this man. But I still had the contract in place and if the company survived, so would I. Six months after the ink was dry, I got a phone call letting me know they were cutting my pay in half. Six months after that, there were no payments at all. The only word that comes to my mind when I think of that is cluster fuck. 12 years it took me to build that business from nothing and make it a household name among cloth-diapering families. I put everything I had into that brand and that company. I sacrificed time with my kids, my health, and almost my life. Don't even ask me about the sleep that was lost during that time. Sleep? <laughs> what was that? They destroyed it in less than three months. And I watched this disaster happen from the sidelines, powerless to do anything about it. The day I got the phone call that my illusion of financial security was about to disappear was the day I started writing my book, refusing to drown. I was again planning my demise, smartly this time. And I did have a plan, but I knew I couldn't do it. So I started writing the book to help save my life and give people an inspiring story. My rationale was that if I could take people on this journey to some sort of salvation, I wouldn't be so alone and that everything I had experienced would be worth it. I had to write my happily ever after story. I had enough vision that I could see one on the horizon, but I had no idea how I was going to get there. Four months after moving back to New Orleans, after exiting my business to people who I now knew were incompetent, Yet another poor judgment. I fell off of a bar I was dancing on after 12 hours of straight drinking and wound up in the ER with a broken rib and a busted ankle. Time to get sober, I thought. (laughs) And I did, for a minute. But it would take me a full year and a half to put together more than 90 days of sobriety at a time. And I struggled every step of the way. Until, at some point, I didn't struggle anymore. I can now look back on this experience and have gratitude for it. I knew, even when I was going through the shit tornado of losing it all, that it was for the best. I needed to be knocked down a peg, or let's see, 300 of them, to get to a real turning point. And I fully embraced that the only place to go from there was up. I think what I was looking for was humility. Little by little, the ego was being chipped away, and little glimmers of spirit would begin to shine through. I will always be grateful for the financial means to take a year off of life and, well, just hit bottom. I disappeared into the black hole, which was called New Orleans, Louisiana, where my true alcoholic bottom was waiting for me. And in July of 2015, two years after moving back there, the unthinkable and miraculous happened. Alcohol quit working for me. It didn't work. I couldn't get drunk. I would go from sober to blackout drunk with no fun in between. But I certainly got the hangovers and the consequences. It became a chore to drink. But I couldn't stop. I could not stop. I kept drinking for another month. And after a typical night out with a friend of mine and more incomprehensible demoralization, I picked up my phone after checking to see if my car was still in the driveway and I was indeed waking up in my own house, preferably fully clothed, and I found the next AA meeting. August 9th, 2015, I would walk back into the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous and never look back. I was spiritually dead, financially and emotionally bankrupt, and finally willing to make a change for the better. I had to, or death was soon going to find me. And since alcohol no longer worked, Something else had to. In the next episode of Refusing to Drown, I'm going to start my recovery story. I will share how I would heal from every bit of trauma I have ever faced, how I beat addiction, and how I got to this place of having a calm spirit, an awakened mind, and enough love coursing through my veins to heal a small army of suffering souls. And most importantly, how I became the love of my life. If you've enjoyed this episode of Refusing to Drown, please subscribe, like, and review this podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. We'd also love for you to share this podcast with friends and family members or other survivors needing a lifeline. And if you'd like to support this podcast, as well as my journey to reach more people with my story, head on over to refusingtodrown.com, where you can buy inspirational apparel to help spread the love or book an intuitive coaching session with yours truly so I can help you swim a little bit closer to shore. Thank you for joining me today. I'm Terrison Dupuy, and until next time, just keep on swimming.